All right, this is the panel people have been waiting for. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Just days after the annual meeting, we ask, what just happened in Davos? We are going to try to solve the problem of AI in this panel. We're 45 minutes. Yes, AI was on everyone's lips and everyone wanted to hear from pioneers like Sam Altman. We're going to have better tools. We've had better tools before. I admit, it does feel different this time. There was a lot of talk, sure, but how did Davos change the world? Equally important, if not even more important, is measuring the outcome the impact. For the forum, Davos is the culmination of impactful work going on around the year. I ask forum leaders, just what was the impact of Davos 2024? This event is more than just a convening. It's a way in which we commit to doing real tangible action on the ground. This week at the annual meeting, we've got strong commitment from some of the largest CEOs to help small, medium-sized enterprises reduce their scope three emissions. We've had dozens of amazing impacts. Our Edison Alliance initiative for digital inclusion and healthcare, education, and connectivity. We initially set a goal of a billion by 2025. We're on track to meet that at some point during 2024. There are 20 countries that are now building lifelong learning systems, and that's really going to be the lasting legacy of this work. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit weft.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find our sister programs, Meet the Leader and Agenda Dialogues. I'm Robin Palmer at the World Economic Forum, and with this look at the impacts of Davos 2024, Once you are empowered to take action, there's no stopping you. This is Radio Devils. Well, that was the annual meeting 2024. It started with an opening concert featuring Angelique Kidjo and ended after countless discussions between some of the world's best minds and most influential figures on the biggest issues we face, the economy, jobs, inequality, war, climate change, health, technology, the list goes on. But is the World Economic Forum's annual meeting just a big talking shop or does it have tangible impact? What you may not know is that the forum is not just a week of frantic activity at the start of each year in the Swiss Alps. In fact, my colleagues work throughout the year on projects in all those sectors I just mentioned, aimed at making a difference. And in this episode, I speak to the heads of the forum's many centres to see what impact they felt Davos had this year. You'll also hear clips from some of the most impactful discussions. They're still available to watch in full on our website and also on the podcast Agenda Dialogues. As artificial intelligence was perhaps the most discussed issue this year, let's start with the Forum's Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution to see how the global conversation and action on artificial intelligence moved forward in Davos. Kathy Lee, Head of AI, Data and Metaverse, World Economic Forum. I'm really, really proud of the presence of all of the key AI voices but at the same time, also the, the key debates and the outcomes as well. We did cover from, you know, the technology itself, the latest breakthrough in the technology uh, to the uh, AI's impact on the economy. How does it transform industries and sectors and job markets to how do we regulate and govern the technology and its applications, as well as the geopolitical implications brought by AI, such as on uh, national security diplomacy, and many other international fronts. We also covered a very important aspect, which is the access to AI models and data and applications, and how do we ensure that we don't further exacerbate the digital divide that's been existing for a long time. There's also key debates around the near-term risks versus long-term, and again, how do we put the guardrails in place to make sure that we cover the risks from both. I would encourage as much discussion as possible, but very importantly, among a very diverse community of opinions. Because only by doing that, we will be able to understand the technology better, not only among the general public, among the policymakers as well. All right. This is the panel people have been waiting for. We are going to try to solve the problem of AI in this panel. We have 45 minutes. Henry Kissinger used to say, people who need no introduction crave it the most. So I am going to... uh, I'm going to abandon that rule. I think nobody here needs an introduction. You know who they all are. Um, and I'm going to assume none of them particularly care. Let me start with you, Sam. I think most people are worried about two kind of opposite things about AI. One is it's going to end humankind as we know it. And the other is why can't it drive my car? Where do you think realistically we are 
with artificial intelligence right now. What is it for you? What are the things it can do most effectively? And what are the things we need to understand that it cannot do? I, I think a very good sign about this new tool is that even with its very limited current capability and its very deep flaws, people are finding ways to use it in it for great productivity gains or other gains and understand the limitations. So a system that is sometimes right, sometimes creative, often totally wrong. You actually don't want that to drive your car, um, but you're, you're happy for it to, uh, you know, like help, help you brainstorm what to write about or help you with code that you get to check. And so we have help, been- Help us understand why can't it drive my car? Well, there are, I mean, there are great self-driving car systems, but uh, like at this point, you know, Waymo's around San Francisco, are, uh, there are a lot of them and people love them. Um, what I meant is like the sort of open AI style of model. Right is good at some things, but not good at sort of like a life and death situation. Um, but people under, I think people understand tools and tool limitations of tools more than we often give them credit for. And people have found ways to make ChatGPT super useful to them and understand like what not to use it for, for the most part. So I think it's a very good sign that even at these systems, current extremely limited capability levels, you know, much worse than what we'll have this year to say nothing of what we'll have next year. Uh, people, lots of people have found ways to get value out of them and also to understand their limitations. So, you know, I think it's AI has been somewhat demystified uh, because people really use it now. And uh, that's, I think, always the best way to pull the world forward with a new technology. I want to hear from you what you think, what do you think is left for a human being to do if the AI can outanalyze a human being What's the core competence of human beings? I think there will be a lot of things. Humans really care about what other humans think. That seems very deeply uh, wired into us. So chess uh, was one of the first like victims of AI, right? Deep Blue could be Kasparov, whenever that was a long time ago. And all of the commentators said, um, this is the end of chess. Now that a computer can beat the human, you know, no one's going no to bother to watch chess again, ever. It's over. Or play chess again. Chess has, I think, never been more popular than it is right now. Um, and if you like cheat with AI, that's a big deal. And no one, or almost no one, watches two AIs play each other. Um, we're like very interested in what humans do. When I read a book that I love, the first thing I do when I finish is like, I want to know everything about the author's life. And I want to like feel some connection to that person that made this thing that resonated with me. And, uh, you know, like what, same thing for like many other products that, that humans know what other humans want very well. Humans are also very interested in other people. I think humans are going to, we're going to have better tools. We've had better tools before, but we're still like very focused on each other. And I think we will do things with better tools. And I admit it does feel different this time. Sam Altman, if you hadn't guessed, CEO of OpenAI, the company that brought you a little over a year ago, ChatGPT. He was talking to CNN's Farid Zakaria in a Davos session called Technology in a Turbulent World. Before him, you heard Kathy Lee, who heads AI work at the Forum's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. That center is run by our next speaker. Hi, Jeremy Jurgens, Managing Director at the World Economic Forum. We've had dozens of amazing impacts, but maybe I could just highlight the three that were particularly special for me. First is we've continued to make progress on our Edison Alliance initiative to improve the lives of 1 billion people uh, you know, through uh, improving their digital inclusion in healthcare, uh, education, and connectivity. And we're making good progress now with over 700 million lives touched uh, across 330 projects in more than 127 countries. And so while we initially set a goal of a billion by 2025, I think we're on track to you know, meet that at some point during 2024. So it's really just great to see that kind of progress. Also in the digital space, we had the opportunity to uh, welcome new uh, members into our network of fourth industrial revolution centers, uh, making agreements with the government of Germany, where we'll work together on uh, GovTech, uh, with uh, Vietnam, where we'll be working on AI and manufacturing, and as well uh, with uh, Qatar, where we'll also be looking at uh, how to extend the benefits of the fourth industrial revolution uh, to citizens in each of those countries and sharing and exchanging best practices. And maybe the third area, which is more on the launch stage of something new, uh, we've put together an initiative on women's health. And you know, studies show that by 2050, 
you could have a trillion dollar impact uh, on the economy, you know, 1.7% uh, improvement in global GDP, if we just did some basic measures to improve uh, quality of uh, healthcare for women. And so we'll be kicking that off and looking forward to making progress on this initiative uh, during the course of the year and reporting back uh, in the years to come. We'll be hearing a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, on the Edison Alliance that Jeremy Jurgens just mentioned, you can read an impact report published during Davos on the work, um, which is finding ways to close the so-called digital divide and bring the benefits of technology to more people around the world. The Forum's Center for Nature and Climate has a huge challenge, finding ways to bring together businesses and governments to seek solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. They had a busy week. Here is the center's Jack Hurd. My name is Jack Hurd. I am co-head of the Nature Pillar within the Center for Nature and Climate here at the Forum. One of the things that's been going on this week is the continuation of a whole number of conversations going back last month to the climate conference in Dubai. And the thing that's been most powerful is the discussion of money, the financing for things that need to be done under nature and climate. And I'll just give a couple of examples of how this has come through over the last little bit of time. The other day, we had a center plenary session for the Center for Nature and Climate, and it involved uh, Ajay Banga, who's the president of the World Bank, and Kristalina Georgieva, who's the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. You had these two big global organizations talking specifically about how they need to change and alter their strategies to start driving resources to a low emission future, the conservation and protection of nature, and adaptation to climate change. That's a really important thing because that doesn't often happen. So let's hear from World Bank Chief Ajay Banga then. Here he is in conversation with Forum Founder and Executive Chairman Klaus Schwab, saying that the bank is paying ever more attention to the challenge of climate change. In the interview, which you can hear incidentally in full on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues, Ajay Banga says he views the bank's mission as tackling a triangle of challenges, inequality and poverty, humanity's impact on nature, and the big political dilemma, which is the trade-off between long-term and short-term goals. One of the challenges in the, in the World Bank is that we have been focused over the years for good reason on input, as in projects and lending and dollars applied. And those are important. But I think equally important, if not even more important, is measuring the outcome, the impact of those projects and dollars in terms of how many girls went to school? How many people got a better job because of a skilling institute that we invested in? Uh, how, many, how many tons of carbon emissions we avoided because of certain things we funded? How many private sector dollars we crowded in along with our own capital in a project to help drive impact? And I think measuring impact is really important. We are changing the entire corporate scorecard of the World Bank to focus a great deal on these measurements of impact along the dimensions of that triangle in terms of both quality of life, in terms of inclusiveness and driving against inequality, but also in the case of climate and nature and doing so with long-term thinking. World Bank Chief Ajay Banga at Davos 2024. His counterpart at the International Monetary Fund was also there, another important figure in the fight against climate change. Here's the forum's Jack Hurd again. The second thing that happened was a pretty robust set of discussions in a few sessions around subsidies, fossil fuel subsidies in particular, which according to the IMF come out at about seven trillion US dollars a year. Now, look, every country is, is permitted to sort of subsidize what is important to achieve certain policy objectives. But with the phasing out of fossil fuels or the transition away from fossil fuels being a stated imperative, we now have the opportunity to retool that subsidy regime in many countries around the world. The IMF chief, Kristalina Georgieva, was in Davos. You can hear an exclusive interview with her on our sister podcast, Meet the Leader, coming soon. Here she is speaking at a session in Davos about the importance for all leaders to prioritize action on climate change. For all these leaders, I have one advice. Get your kids and especially your grandchildren, if you have some on your phone, put their picture there. And when you don't know what is the right thing to do, look at them and it will come. It always comes to me and I know it comes to Ajay. We have responsibility to be stewards of our beautiful small planet's future because this is the home for the future generations 
we have to pass it to them the way we inherited it from our parents. Staying with climate, we're learning more about the impacts of climate change on health, an issue tackled by the World Economic Forum's Centre for Health and Healthcare. Hi, this is Shyam Bishain, and I head up the Centre for Health and Healthcare at the World Economic Forum. We highlighted some of the key challenges on the health and healthcare side. One is on the climate and health side, where we brought in multi-stakeholder panelists from industry, from public sector, Minister of Health from Brazil, who's leading G20 Health Agenda, was there to highlight the impact of climate change on human health. Uh, looking at some of the adaptation and preparedness strategies. You can hear the Brazilian health minister on a session called When Climate Impacts Your Health. She spoke in Portuguese, for the, so for the sake of this podcast, let's hear what another speaker on that panel had to say. This is Vanessa Kerry, CEO of Seed Global Health, a non-profit that helps provide nursing and medical training support in poorer countries. The climate crisis is a health crisis, fundamentally. And that actually means it is a crisis, therefore, also of our stability, our security, our economic growth, and our fundamental future as a globe. When we think about it, health is fundamental to everything that we are trying to do. This is not a future problem, though. We always talk in future numbers. This is a problem happening here and now today. 2023 was an apocalyptic year in terms of extreme weather events and what we've seen happen. That is about to get worse. We are on a target now for 2.4 degrees Celsius. But optimistically, if we come out of COP and we hold it, we could stay a little bit lower. But we're really at a, a crisis, and it's going to come down to two things. We have to phase out fossil fuels, because this is a crisis of burning fossil fuels. And we have to mobilize more money, not only to the mitigation, but to the adaptation and the resilience so that we can offset what is happening and protect communities. You can read the forum's report called Quantifying the Impact of Climate Change on Human Health on our website. Here's Xi'an Bishen again, the head of health at the World Economic Forum, on that women's health initiative that Jeremy Jurgens mentioned earlier. We just launched a global alliance for women's health uh, in collaboration with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which again has representation from governments, from G20, as well as from private sector. So this work will go on throughout the year. It's a three-year-long uh, initiative. So... We come to Davos to highlight, to amplify our work, to get uh, public perspective um, and feedback. But then we continue uh, working on the initiative uh, throughout the year. It is a sad reality that a really significant gap exists between both the experience and the outcomes of men and women going through the healthcare system. And it is a reality that is just not a North uh, reality or South or East or West or developing or developed. It is a global problem and is one that urgently and deliberately needs to be addressed. And we see three themes. The first one starts with biology. We do not understand female biology as well as we do that of men. And that is not only on what traditionally has been understood as women health, so reproductive health systems, in, for example, endometriosis, which is a disease that affects 10% of women of reproductive age, yet it doesn't see the level of investment or interest in finding a diagnostic or finding a cure. This links me to my second point, that is an economic argument. We're not understanding it, the biology, because we're not investing in it. And it's not just about the investment in research and development of these conditions. It's also the investment, for example, in technology where we see digital health being a real area for investment from the private equity community, the VC community, but only 3% of that investment is going into what we know as femtech. That was from a press conference about uh, women's health that you heard Paula Belostas Mugerza, senior partner and Europe co-lead health at uh, the consultancy Carney. The press conference was called Redesigning Healthcare with Women in Mind. You can see the whole thing on our website. Another forum centre working to improve the lives of women around the world is the Centre for the New Economy and Society, which publishes the annual Gender Gap Report. They also publish the Global Risks Report, which came out just before the annual meeting and set the agenda for many of the discussions. We dived into that on Radio Davos. Please check out that episode from a couple of weeks ago. At the end of the Davos week, I asked Forum Managing Director Sadia Zahidi, who heads that centre, to pick some of her highlights from this annual meeting. 
Sadia Zahidi, Managing Director, heading the Center for the New Economy and Society. For me, it falls into three categories. The, the first is really the outlook around the economy and around the risks that we face. Um, so one thing is simply having a good radar, and that's what we did with our chief economist outlook, with our global risks report, and that provided a, a good backdrop to understand um, what the uncertainties are, what are the reasons behind them, and what might be some of the scenarios moving forward. But a second element within that category was um, our Future of Growth initiative. Uh, that's a two-year campaign that's going to bring together policymakers, economists, and some business leaders to try to unpack this whole topic of how do we look beyond GDP? We say we want to look beyond GDP, but we don't actually do that. And so we've provided this future of growth framework that brings together GDP along with metrics on inclusion, sustainability, resilience, and innovation. And now we're going to work with about 15 countries to try to see what does that look like when you localize some of those learnings. The second big area is around human capital. And that's where we have two avenues of work. One is around really the development of human capital. So education, skills, learning, how do we do all of that much better, much faster? And I'm happy to report that the Reskilling Revolution initiative that we started four years ago um, announced this week that over 680 million people have been reached against a target of a billion by 2030. But more importantly, there are 20 countries that are now building lifelong learning systems, and that's really going to be the lasting legacy of this work. On the other angle of that is around jobs. So we know jobs are going to get disrupted. Our data, a lot of other data that was presented here showed that, but there's an opportunity for both automation as well as augmentation. And so how do we actually create the right incentives for augmentation and for augmentation to be done well, especially in an age of AI, there's a lot to unpack there. So this is not only about protecting certain jobs, this is about trying to figure out how do we get people to work alongside technology in very different ways than they have in the past. And that can only be good for all of us because it's going to improve our productivity and perhaps make all of us a lot richer in terms of the leisure time that we have. Yes, it's AI again. So let's hear from a session that Sadia hosted at the annual meeting. It was called Thinking Through Augmentation. This is Christy Hoffman, General Secretary of the UNI Global Union, which represents more than 20 million workers in the services sectors in 150 countries. So I represent workers across service industries, including ranging from professional athletes on one side to you know, caregivers and, and cleaners on the other, but also including finance, IT, and call centers. You know, everybody's afraid. Um, what does this mean for me? The reality is some sectors are going to be way more heavily, as you pointed out, call centers. That, that's the big one where there's already been LLMs in use for a few years. So we have some data to look at. Um, so I think and then and then on the other side, on the media industry, we've seen two strikes this year uh, over like getting the right to negotiate guardrails around the use of their images and, and their their writing. So I think in the creatives, there's a lot of fear and they're. Um, you know, taking steps to address that through through bargaining. But um, in the other industries, I think there's a mix of this could be great. Some of the evidence coming out of call centers, for example, is, yeah, this makes our job easier and better. On the other hand, like we need the opportunity to sit down and negotiate with the employer to make sure it's fairly implemented, to make sure we get our fair benefit from it. Not all the gains flow to to the business um, that, you know, it's fair and, and that some of the risks are mitigated, including job security. I would say if two-year, 10-year horizon or, you know, I think it will be more gradual than what people are, you know, fearing right now. And that, you know, we've seen some of these big transitions in bank for bank workers, for example, where many jobs have been eliminated over decades. Um, and it's been done in a way at least where there are unions, which is respectful of, you know, managing through attrition and early retirement and so on. So I don't think it necessarily means a huge displacement, just a, an adjustment. Just an adjustment. Well, it could be a big adjustment for some of us. Read more on this issue in the forum's annual Future of Jobs report. The last one came out last May, but it's a great one to look out for. That's produced by the Center for the New Economy and Society which is headed by Sadia. Here she is again. Now, the third big area is around equity. And that's where we had uh, a couple of different tracks. So 
a big focus on gender equality. We launched this week the Gender Parity Sprint. Now, every year we say that it's going to take 100 plus years to get to gender equality through some of our data. And we said, well, how do we actually skip ahead? How do we get there in six years? How do we get to 50-50 by 2030? That's what this big effort is around, the Gender Parity Sprint. A second big area is around the equitable transition. So we know, much like the digital transition, the green transition and all of the focus on sustainability will disrupt jobs across various sectors. It's going to create wholly new ones and the, the outlook is net positive, but it's also going to lead to a decline in certain types of jobs. And some of those people will need a, a, a serious concerted effort to get that reskilling and upskilling done. But also it will have an impact on the affordability of services in the short term. And so if we take the consumer into account, if we take entrepreneurs into account, if we take employees into account across all of the key sectors that will be going through a green transition, how do we get that done? And we launched the Equitable Transition Alliance here this week. And that's exactly what that group is going to focus on. Find out more about the Gender Parity Sprint and the Equitable Transition Alliance on our website. Let's hear something more on gender parity from a Davos session, a one called The World in Numbers, Gender Parity. This is former Spanish Foreign Minister Arancha Gonzalez. No, we are not making this world more equal. We're moving in the direction of making it more unequal. So we've got a problem. We should not make this an issue of women against men or men against women. Because this is not how we will be able to advance. We've got to be very clear that it's men and women advancing together, that it's not a zero-sum game, that we will be making the business more profitable, that we will make the administration more solid, that we will make the government more responsive. It's an endeavor of men and women working together, but with better parity. Arancha Gonzalez, Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs at Sciences Po. On now to another part of the forum, advanced manufacturing. Kiva Allgood and I am the head of advanced manufacturing and supply chain for the World Economic Forum. This week, we had a lot of really good discussions around net zero and specifically scope three. So for those that don't know what scope three means, it's basically everything in your supply chain upstream and down. So it's how consumers use your products, so recycling things, and it's also how your suppliers manufacture your components. And the reason why that's important is because that's the biggest driver of greenhouse gases. It's also one of the most complex spaces to really attack. And this week at the annual meeting, super excited because we've got strong commitment from some of the largest CEOs to really go after and, and partner to help small, medium-sized enterprises reduce their scope three emissions. Let's hear from one company working in an emissions intensive industry, Cement. Holsim is certainly not a small or medium-sized company, but as one of the world's biggest cement makers, it is working on decarbonization and recycling. Our whole adventure started in Zurich, actually, because the public authorities made it mandatory to recycle at least 20% of materials in all of their public works. So our research teams had to figure out, okay, how do I put 20% recycled content in you know, our cement and concrete? Uh, and that's what gave us the platform to get going on this. Um, and we produced the world's very first cement that was four years ago with 20% recycled construction demolition materials inside. And we realized that by doing this, actually, we're taking the concrete at its end of life. And if we process it and crush it down to its most finest level, we can actually recuperate the cement paste. And it becomes a decarbonized raw material in the formulation of new cement. So today, we can basically take the demolition, that we recuperate the cement paste to actually reduce 40% of the footprint of new cement. Uh, that's a pretty uh, significant breakthrough. So by doing this, uh, we can literally take old buildings and reduce the footprint of the next generation of buildings by, uh, by basically having this closed loop system. But what we, what we can, to scale this up, our vision is in every single metropolitan area where we operate, we want to make circular construction happen. Noleg Forrest, Chief Sustainability Officer of cement maker Holsim, speaking at a session called The Right Stuff, A New Relationship with Materials. Also on that session was Jeff Merritt, head of the Forum's Centre for Urban Transformation, which works to improve cities and the lives of people who live in them. Jeff told me about the impact of one project that he had been working on over the last year. I'm Jeff Merritt. I'm the head of urban transformation here at the World Economic Forum. I'm a member of our executive committee. Last year at Davos, we announced something uh, that now we call Yes San Francisco or Yes SF. And it was the idea 
Could we work together in our hometown, San Francisco, to help to revitalize the downtown, to help diversify the economy and bring back that down, that vibrant downtown? And it's pretty remarkable in some ways that we're here one year later after just an idea. And not only can we say that, you know, we have worked closely with the mayor's office, the Chamber of Commerce, and brought startups that are now setting up in downtown San Francisco, deploying state-of-the-art sustainability solutions in the city. But now also our partners are doubling down on that commitment. And we're going to be taking that model and seeing how we can replicate that in cities around the world. And so this event is in so many ways more than just a convening. Uh, it's a way in which we come together. It's a way in which we commit to doing real tangible action on the ground. Another part of the forum working to impact people's lives for the better is the Centre for Financial and Monetary Systems. Let's hear from its head, Matthew Blake, on an initiative to help people plan financially for a longer life. My name is Matthew Blake. I run the Centre for Financial and Monetary Systems here at the World Economic Forum. We had an amazing week here uh, with the team. I think one piece that we're very uh, proud of and where we went live to a public audience on a, a deliverable was a set of six uh, longevity principles that are grounded in making uh, strong and smart financial decisions over one's extended life uh, period. Now that we as uh, human beings are living 15, 20 years longer than we did historically, that's especially true for generations that are being born today. How do you think about the financial consequences associated with that longer life as it relates to um, your, you know, your goals as an individual, buying property, going to school, uh, various, various other um, life moments. How do you finance those things? And in addition to that, how do you finance a longer life in terms of health and community and so on? So this is a vital issue. We've issued uh, six principles um, in conjunction with Mercer and 20 companies have endorsed those to integrate those principles into their business oper operations, actually, and how they think about longevity in the context of their corporate responsibility. So we're extremely uh, enthused and delighted to have that outcome. You can read those longevity economy principles on our website, links in the show notes. Let's take another look at tech. With artificial intelligence, the most spoken about topic in Davos this year, one of the increased risks is in cybersecurity. Here's the head of Interpol, an organization with 196 member countries aiming to fight crime across borders. Jürgen Stock sets out the huge challenge from cybercrime. The global law enforcement community uh, is struggling with the sheer volume um, of, let's say, cyber-related crime, so high-tech crime. Perhaps we, we, we know eight or something between eight and 30% of all the cases have been reported to the police. All the rest is under, not reported to the police, so we only see the, the, the peak of the iceberg. I mean, cyber criminals are organized in a very different way than the way that, that I learned when I was a young police officer. We're, we're dealing with a typical, let's say, traditional kind of mafia-style crime. So people knowing each other, mm -hmm. um, so the same geographical relation and, and so on and so on. So that, that was the principle. Now, the key word today, we all know that, cybercrime as a service. So the, the, the criminals mm -hmm. are organizing themselves based on expertise and, and, and uh, through the underground economy. They only know their, their nicknames. They get a certain rating. So at, at, at AAA, perhaps, if they are providing reliable services. So this is the dynamic way in which they organize themselves. And you do not any longer need to be an expert. So even perhaps I, as a non-tech person and a lawyer, I could conduct a denial of service attack because the tools are available for little money in the underground economy. And, and AI as a service for criminals is already there. So the, you, we all know these kind of deep fakes, um, these uh, phishing mails, more sophisticated uh, business email compromise. And we have seen now the first cases of a kind of, um, kind of deep uh, kidnapping where mm -hmm. uh, voices have been cloned and, and the family thought, oh, our, our daughter has been taken hostage, but it was a cloned voice at the end of the day. So that gives us an, an understanding what is coming up. So AI drives also scale, sophistication, and speed in terms of online crime. And the criminals are already there, and we are running behind. And that is not a good position, uh, not only for law enforcement, but for our communities, and particularly the most vulnerable in our communities who might not have the resources to protect their, their own systems. Jürgen Stock, the head of Interpol, speaking at a session in Davos called How Can Cyber Defenders Win? Find that on our website. 
So what can the World Economic Forum do in this area? Here's our head of cybersecurity. My name is Akshay Joshi. I lead the broader operations of the Center for Cybersecurity here at the World Economic Forum. So each year at Davos, we launch our flagship report, the Global Cybersecurity Outlook. This year's outlook put the spotlight on cyber inequity. Now, cyber inequity, simply put, is the growing gap between organizations that are cyber resilient and those that are not. This is further exacerbated by the growing talent gap in cybersecurity, which is estimated at nearly 4 million uh, cybersecurity professionals globally. The World Economic Forum's Bridging the Cyber Skills Gap initiative will launch a strategic cybersecurity talent framework this year, uh, which will aim to help individuals enter and thrive in the cybersecurity workforce. So, you know, all of 2023, we've been reading about AI, but in Davos coming together, meeting with some of the world's biggest names in AI and really having discussions about the infinite possibilities that AI has to offer, but at the same time, the importance of responsible approaches towards deployment was very enlightening indeed. As the Center for Cybersecurity, we will be working together with the AI Governance Alliance uh, to unlock some of the or uncover some of the key issues associated with uh, cybersecurity as applied in the AI realm. Akshay Joshi on the impacts the forum is having in the fight against cybercrime. From the threats posed by tech now back to the opportunities, in this case, for global trade. Here's the forum's head of trade looking ahead to impacts he expects this year. I'm Sean Doherty. I'm head of trade and investment at the World Economic Forum. I think the biggest shift has been a recognition that technology is really essential to making trade faster, cleaner, cheaper, and more accessible. One of the big things coming out of Davos is that next month, the World Trade Organization will hold their 13th ministerial conference. We'll be holding a big trade tech event alongside that, which is really focused on incubating new technology, accelerating new technology, and helping it be deployed to really uh, make trade work better for everyone. So it's really a broad range of things from vehicle technology through to uh, trade finance, um, through the management of information in the supply chain, really helping all the different parts of the trade chain work better together across multiple countries, multiple sectors. I think my Davos moment this year was chairing a meeting of 20 executives talking about how their companies are responding to geopolitics very practically. And, and it was really a Davos moment because nowhere else, I think, would you have executives from so many different sectors and so many different parts of the world really frankly sharing the difficulties they face and how they're trying to overcome those difficulties and really look for opportunity in uh, responding to the geopolitical changes. The head of the World Trade Organization spoke at a Davos session called No Recovery Without Trade and Investment. It's a great session that addresses economic nationalism, the diversification of supply chains, so-called friendshoring, and more. Here's the head of the WTO, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. We need to think of globalization, not in the way it was done before, but differently. And we need to make sure that those who did not benefit during the first round benefit this time. The reason globalization got a bad name is some poor people in rich countries were left out, and poor countries or developing countries were at the margin. We don't want to repeat in the new paradigm the same story where in diversifying supply chains and rejigging the way we do business and building resilience, we leave out a set of countries at the margin. So I must speak up for developing countries. We, we have to, uh, we, fortunately, we have a paradigm at the WTO that will help us do this. We believe very strongly that we can both diversify supply chains and build resilience. We can diversify our supply chains, deconcentrate those sectors and geographies that are causing a problem by diversifying them also to developing countries, other parts of the world that have the right business environment. And we're calling this re-globalization. So you can, yes, inevitably you can reshore uh, re some, nearshore some, but please let us also diversify some supply chains, build them in developing countries, help to create jobs. 
energy now, a topic that impacts so many of the other things we've discussed in this episode, the economy, trade, the climate. He's the head of energy at the forum with his take on the week. Roberto Bocca, head of the Center for Energy and Material at the World Economic Forum. We have three big, big themes. The first one was how we move forward with the business case and the economic case for the energy transition. The environmental case is very clear, but now we need to make things happen. We need to accelerate and the business and economic case is a critical one. That is first topic. The second one is the element of addressing energy demand, how we can be more efficient in the way we use energy. And the third element is, is the element of energy equity. There is no transition if this is not an equitable transition. And so we really had a lot of conversation between the so-called global south and global north to make sure there is not such a division, but we are really focused on a transition that is for everyone. We have announced uh, here in Davos three additional industrial clusters. Uh, one in China, one in Europe, and one in the US, that are going forward with concrete action to A, decarbonize their cluster, their industrial zone, but also to maintain or create more jobs and to maintain or create more GDP growth. So this is now part of 20 clusters that we have been working with and we are working with around the world, all the way from Australia to Japan to the US, China, Europe, really to try to tackle the energy transition where the energy is consumed. And these are the industrial zone where multiple companies uh, are working together. Let's hear from the head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Birol, looking ahead to the next climate COP, where he hopes there will be a bigger investment in green energy in developing markets. When we look at the last five years, clean energy investment increased from $1 trillion to $1.8 trillion, big increase, whereas the fossil fuel investments remain the same. But the problem is all of this increase came from the advanced economies and China. What about the rest? So we need everybody to be on board. So therefore, it will be great if we, the next uh, COP, COP29 in Baku, can have a look at this missing bit, and which means, for me, the fault line of our fight against climate change and the, how we are going to support the emerging and developing countries for clean energy investments. Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency, speaking in Davos at a session called Transforming Energy Demand. Let's hear now about impact from the forum's three communities, young global leaders, global shapers, and the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. They're all overseen by Francois Bonici. Francois Bonici, I'm head of foundations here at the World Economic Forum. The foundations are three special communities created intentionally to bring perspectives, voices from young people and social change makers from around the world into the conversations, into the initiatives, uh, and into the magic of the annual meeting. The Global Shapers are an amazing community of 10,000 young people in 500 cities in 150 countries in the world. Having that representation, having those voices spread throughout the annual meeting is in itself a, a highlight and special moment. But for them this year, uh, they're meeting with Al Gore right now as we speak. Um, they're giving their perspectives on issues that are very important to them around climate, uh, around inclusion in the world. This year, the Young Global Leaders community celebrates 20 years uh, at the annual meeting. Uh, it's an incredible community of uh, young, dynamic leaders under the age of 40, young ministers, CEOs and entrepreneurs, civil society leaders and academics, um, people like Adam Grant, for example. These are incredible um, leaders who are facing some of the biggest challenges in the future, and we bring them together as a community uh, to support each other, to navigate the bold decisions that need to be made over the next decade. 20 years of celebrating and looking 20 years ahead. The Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship is the World Economic Forum's oldest foundation uh, 26 years old this year, bringing the leading change makers from grassroots to uh, for-profit social enterprises uh, to the World Economic Forum. A social enterprise is an organization that puts people and planet before profit, but can run sustainably as well. For the first time, we've released a global data set on the scale of social enterprise, as opposed to a set of individual nice-to-have examples. We know now that there are 10 million social enterprises in the world creating 200 million jobs with annual revenues of 2 trillion. That's bigger than the apparel industry. This is no longer a marginal, interesting, nice to have set of projects, but actually a growing sector that can build a sustainable economy. This year, we've launched an innovation prize to scale up uh, and provide support to 15 of the best projects. There are 2,500 each year 
uh, from around the world. Each hub, each year, produces a project that is important to them at the local city level or a national level. Uh, these could be engaging policymakers around uh, climate change in the country, or could be addressing a particular need, homelessness, uh, diversity and inclusion that is important to them in their cities. You can watch the 2024 Social Innovation Awards on our website. In addition to the work of the forum centres and communities, which, as we have seen, is something that happens all year round, the annual meeting is also an important meeting place for political leaders. We asked Forum Managing Director Mirek Dushek for his reflections on geopolitics in Davos. Mirek Dushek, I'm Managing Director at the World Economic Forum. It's a tradition that the Forum has, an important one, to provide a platform for dialogue on some sometimes very tough geopolitical uh, issues top of the agenda this week here was, of course, the tragic violence in the Middle East and the war in Gaza and also Ukraine. So those would be the two things that I would mention. On Ukraine, we were very proud. It was a historic moment for the forum. We had the uh, meeting here of national security advisors on Ukraine's peace formula, uh, over 80 of them here on Sunday. And of course, this is a very, very pivotal moment for Ukraine in terms of having the support of the international community, not only in terms of the war that they're fighting, but also in terms of reconstruction. And on the latter, we were also able to then uh, convene here a special meeting of uh, business leaders uh, that are committed to helping Ukraine with uh, reconstruction. On Gaza, uh, it is uh, an issue that is uh, top of mind uh, of the world. Um, we uh, were uh, really glad that uh, we could, again, in a way that we can here at the World Economic Forum, provide a platform for dialogue at a very sensitive time for all stakeholders. Uh, we had here leaders from the Arab world. We had here a leader that was nominated by the Palestinian president. We had here the Israeli president. Uh, and we had here other um, stakeholders, including uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, really addressing the issue of uh, the ongoing war in Gaza, but also uh, what is next, what needs to be done to get uh, at some point to a better future for the region. Heads of state and government visiting Davos often give special addresses, which you can watch live or on catch up on our website. Let's hear a snatch from Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. In such beautiful country, in Switzerland, we have made a key political contribution to the possibility of ending the war. There was the most representative meeting of national security advisors regarding the implementation of the peace formula. More than 80 countries and international institutions were represented. Yesterday, I had very I had very productive negotiation with the president of Switzerland and discussing the possibility of holding a summit at the leaders level in Switzerland. The first summit, the Global Peace Summit. Today, our teams have already begun work on organization such a summit, not the World War III, but the Global Peace Summit. As well as being an exhausting week with as I hope we've shown here, lots of impact. The annual meeting is somewhere that produces what are known as Davos moments. These can be accidental meetings of or conversations between perhaps unlikely groups of people. Al Gore brushing shoulders with music legend Nile Rogers, for example, or fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg passing judgment on your suit. I was trudging through the snow late one night during the week when I saw a familiar looking woman of a certain age also contending with the snow and ice. Just a frail human like the rest of us. But Jane Goodall is a formidable figure, a tireless and inspirational campaigner for animal rights, the environment and the humanity in all of us. Several of the people I asked about what were their Davos moments mentioned her. So let's leave the last word in this episode with Jane Goodall. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Everybody here, everybody listening. And I, I grew up in a world that's different for, from any of those that you grew up in. Because when I was a child, there was no television. It hadn't been invented. And I think young people today can't imagine a world like that. 
So I was born loving animals and loving nature. And I learned by being out in nature. We had a big garden. And from books, those were the two things. We couldn't afford new books. Uh, this was during World War II. And so I used to haunt a second-hand bookshop. And one day I found this little book. I just had saved up enough pennies to buy it. And that was called Tarzan of the Apes. So, of course, I fell in love as a 10-year-old child can with this glorious lord of the jungle. And what did he do? He married the wrong Jane. <laughs> so anyway, that's when I dreamed that I would go to Africa, live with wild animals, and write books about them. No dream of being a scientist. And everybody laughed at me. How will you do that? You don't have money. Africa's a dangerous place full of wild, fierce animals. And you're just a girl. Not my mother. She said, if you want to do something like this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity, and then, if you don't give up, hopefully you find a way. We share 98.6% of our DNA with chimps, and it was amazing to find in behavior how like us they are. And nobody else had studied them in the world before, so wasn't I lucky to discover all the way they communicate the same as us, that they use and make tools that was something only humans were thought capable of. Isn't it ridiculous that we're destroying the only home we have? And isn't it time now we're faced with the threat of climate change? And it's not a threat anymore, is it? It's reality. The changed weather patterns around the world. Last year, the hottest on record in human history. That's my biggest hope for the future. All the young people around the world once you know, understand the problem, once you are empowered to take action, there's no stopping you. Jane Goodall spoke on several sessions in Davos. They're all available to watch on our website. And there'll be lots more from Davos in the coming weeks across our podcasts. Radio Davos, Meet the Leader and Agenda Dialogues. Find them all at weft.ch slash podcasts or on your favourite podcast app. Thanks to everyone who helped me make this episode, including all those interviewees and Gail Markovitz, Linda Lucina, Juan Toron, Gareth Nolan and Tass Kelleher. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>